This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of uh, inviting back again uh, Dr. Jason Wright, who is the chief of the Division of uh, Gynecologic Oncology and also vice chair of academic affairs in the Department of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology at New York Presbyterian Medical Center. And he's also now the new editor-in-chief of the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology. So we're extremely uh, proud to have, uh, have Jason back on the podcast. And uh, thank you so much once again, Jason, for agreeing to do this. Yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Ramirez. It's a, a pleasure to uh, be back with you uh, to, to talk about this. Yeah, so Jason, I mean, I, I, obviously you're, you're a returning uh, guest and, and we love having you on the podcast for the journal. Um, the, the topic this time is uh, the article recently <coughs> published again in Obstetrics and Gynecology um, titled Uptake and Outcomes of Sentinel Lymph Node Mapping in women with atypical endometrial hyperplasia. So I think obviously it's a, it's a topic that is becoming increasingly more relevant. In fact, uh, yesterday I was uh, at a teleconference. Uh, uh, specifically, there were several questions about uh, the role of sentinel lymph node mapping in, uh, in patients with uh, atypical endometrial hyperplasia. So um, thank you once again for uh, obviously uh, uh, putting this work together. And um, I wanted to start by um, discussing as to wh why do you think that gynecologic oncologists might be performing sentinel lymph node mappings in patients with uh, atypical endometrial hyperplasia? Yeah, you know, thank you uh, again, Pedro, for the opportunity to uh, discuss our, our work. I think really the impetus for this article is is that we we were seeing is that there there were, were trends in practice that the more gynecologic oncologists were starting to do lymph node evaluations in, in women with atypical endometrial hyperplasia. And I think yeah, there are a couple of, of, of rationales for this. I think number one, we know that atypical hyperplasia is associated with a, a forty percent or so risk of having a concurrent invasive endometrial cancer. Uh, for those patients who aren't treated and, and don't yet have a cancer, 30% of women will progress to a cancer. So I think we all, as gynecologic oncologists, know that the, the risk of a cancer is significant in, in this population. I think traditionally treatment has relied on hysterectomy. I, I think we traditionally have not performed lymph node dissection just because of the morbidity of the procedure. Um, and essentially, I think most of us thought that that was probably over-treatment in, in, in this scenario to do nodes on, on those patients who may be at risk for an underlying cancer. I think the, the issue that, that often arises Arises is it's very difficult to identify uh, intraoperatively um, those patients who may benefit from a lymph node dissection. So oftentimes it's 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 difficult to determine if even a cancer is present. If a cancer is present, uh, the depth of invasion and the other uterine pathologic features I think are, are difficult. So it's often difficult to, to triage these patients on who should get a lymph node dissection intraoperatively. I think really what's changed recently is with the availability of, of sentinel lymph node biopsy, um, the morbidity of assessing the lymph nodes is obviously much lower than a traditional uh, lymph node dissection. So I think as the sentinel lymph nodes have diffused throughout gynecologic oncology, we now have access to a, a less morbid way um, to assess the, the lymph nodes. So I think there's a, a lot of theoretic appeal uh, to at least considering this in, in women with atypical hyperplasia who may be at risk for cancer, and it may be beneficial to know the status of the, of the nodes postoperatively. Yeah, and, I, and you know, as you mentioned, and, and actually, the, this came up in, uh, um, in the discussion that I had with one of my patients last week, and she actually brought, brought exactly the same point that uh, you raised. She said, "Well, if I do have that risk of having uh, a, a diagnosis of an endometrial cancer, 
then why not? Why don't you right. do uh, Sentinel Lymph Node Mapping? Ooh. So uh, it, it was really great to have uh, the background of this uh, article for the discussion with her. So then getting into the uh, manuscript itself, uh, <coughs> what, were, what were the primary objectives of, of the study? Yeah, our, our primary ex uh, objective was really to examine the patterns of lymph node assessment in, in women with atypical hyperplasia. I think, as I, I, I said, I, my sense was that, that this was becoming more common in, in this population, but there really wasn't uh, any weren't any large scale studies looking at the uptake of either lymph node dissection or sentinel lymph nodes for atypical hyperplasia. Uh, so that was our, our primary objective. Our secondary ob objectives were to look at the morbidity of the procedure, uh, both compared to, to no lymph node dissection and to, to a full lymphadenectomy, and then also to look at, at cost considerations at the time of, of the procedure for lymph node dissections, sentinel lymph nodes, and, and no lymph node assessment. Great. And, um, and who were the, the patients that you selected? Uh, what was the, the inclusion criteria for the study? So we, we selected women with atypical hyperplasia without a diagnosis of endometrial cancer um, who underwent any route of hysterectomy. So minimally invasive, either robotic or laparoscopic or an open abdominal hysterectomy. Um, all patients were greater than 18 years of age, and the time frame of the study was 2012 to 2018. So by having data up through 2018, I were able to capture a time frame when sentinel lymph nodes have been diffusing into practice in, in gynecologic oncology. Uh, within the cohort, as I said, we started patients, uh, either into those women who just underwent hysterectomy uh, and those women who underwent sentinel lymph node uh, mapping and, and biopsy uh, compared to those women who underwent a, a more formal uh, lymph node dissection or lymph node evaluation. Very well. Um, so what did you find? What were the findings of the study? Yeah, I think probably the, the most important finding of the, the study was the use of sentinel lymph node uh, biopsy has increased fairly dramatically. So when we looked over a study period, the, the overall rate of sentinel lymph node biopsy uh, was under 1% in 2012, um, and that had risen to, to 14% by 2018. So this is, is around a 17-fold uh, increase in the use of sentinel lymph node mapping. So really, you know, uptake in, in the community at, at large of gynecologic on, oncology. Um, other important findings, I, I think reassuringly, there was no increase in, in perioperative morbidity in those women who underwent sentinel lymph node biopsy compared to those women who on, just underwent went hysterectomy alone. And then thirdly, um, we did find that, that there was an increased cost associated with sentinel lymph node mapping compared to hysterectomy uh, alone. So when you look at women who underwent sentinel lymph node uh, biopsy, there was about uh, the increased cost was around $1,300 uh, per procedure. So this is, is around a 15% or so uh, increase in, in the acute perioperative uh, uh, cost uh, of performing these procedures if a sentinel lymph node biopsy is performed compared to just hysterectomy alone. Yeah, so, uh, and I'll, I'll get into uh, several um, <coughs> questions on the, on the details, but really very interesting, a 14% uh, rate of uh, sentinel lymph node mapping back in 2018, so presumably maybe even higher now. Um, so quite, quite, quite interesting. And, and I think also, you know, to the argument of those who say, well, there is no morbidity, so why not add this? Uh, you bring up the point of uh, the consideration of cost, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, um, one question, and, and some of the questions that, that I'll uh, uh, discuss with you, they were directly from our fellows in the journal. Um, Cecilia Darin and Natalia Rodriguez actually asked a similar question, and they say, in your study, you found that the utilization of sentinel lymph node mapping and also uh, lymph node dissection increased over time. Uh, why do you think this might be the case, particularly in the absence of prospective data 
to support this practice? Yeah, I, I think it's exactly the the issue that that, that you raise. I, I think it really stems from from two points. Um, number one, this technology of, of sentinel lymph node mapping has now diffused fairly widely in, in gynecologic oncology. So we're already doing it for endometrial cancer, vulvar cancer, cervical cancer. So I think, I think physicians are familiar with that they're they're able to perform it. That the technology is relatively widely available. I, I think secondly, and probably what's really a driving factor here is is I think that the general thought is that, that the morbidity of this procedure is is very low, both at the, the for perioperative complications as well as for longer-term risk on, on complications such as lymphedema. So I think that the, the, the fact that the, the procedure is out there, we know how to do it, it's generally fairly well tolerated. And, you know, the thought process is that, that, that potentially this information could be useful in those women who have an occult malignancy. I think all of those things are really driving this. And again, I, I think um, what's different compared to when we used to have to do a full lymphadenectomy is that this is a relatively easy and, and, and less morbid option. So I, I think that's why that we're starting to see see increased uptake. Yeah. And um, one of the things also I wanted to ask you, obviously, it seems that from, from the study, uh, sentinel lymph node mapping uh, was being done more frequently in high volume hospitals, in teaching hospitals, in what was designated as larger hospitals. So I'm thinking like, well, that's me. Uh, so then that brings me to the question, uh, at MD Anderson, we don't do this. We don't do sentinel lymph yeah. node mapping for endometrial <coughs> cancer. Uh, are, are we not doing the right thing? Uh, should we start doing sentinel lymph node mapping for atypical hyperplasia? Yeah, I, I think that the jury is still out on this. I, I think for all of the reasons that, that we talked about, I, I think there's there's certainly, you can make a, a case and there's a rationale for poor performing a sentinel lymph node biopsy. You know, whether we need to do this, though, I, I, and whether it's warranted, I, I, I think that's still unclear. I think that the major downside of, of this remains cost. Um, just within our study, that the cost is around 15% higher um, for those women who are on sentinel lymph node biopsy. Mm -hmm. I, I think, despite the fact that, that, you know, women are at risk for an underlying cancer, the majority of women who do have an, an invasive endometrial cancer uh, will have a very low-risk endometrial cancer, um, where perhaps lymph node, uh, the status of the nodes does not make a difference in, in adjuvant therapy and, and the the, uh, the value of the information is, is limited. Um, there's a prior study from the, the group Duke that performed a cost-effectiveness analysis where they essentially looked at, at hysterectomy alone, hysterectomy in frozen section, uh, hysterectomy with, with sentinel lymph node uh, mapping in, in women with atypical hyperplasia. And in that study, what the, they found that was that hysterectomy alone with frozen section was the most favorable strategy from a cost standpoint. Uh, so at the population level, uh, a strategy where you incorporate a sentinel lymph node dissection uh, results in, in around $170,000 of, of increased cost uh, mm. for, for benefit gained. So again, I, th I think we really uh, we, we really need to, to be careful about resource utilization and, uh, and understanding if this is a cost-effective uh, uh, place to utilize sentinel lymph node biopsy. Mm -hmm. And now you you noted a, a complication rate, I believe it was 5.2% in patients undergoing sentinel lymph node mapping. And, you know, certainly, you know, yes, that's low, but some might say, well, that's an absolutely unnecessary 5.2% of patients undergoing a complication because there's truly no indication for the uh, for the procedure. Um, what are your thoughts? And, and you know, you, you, you mentioned also an adjusted model uh, where there was no association between <coughs> mapping and complications. Can you explain that a little bit further for our audience? 
Yeah, sure. I, I think fortunately, you know, really what we found is, is that there was no association between sentinel lymph node mapping and an increased complication rate. When you look at the complication rate uh, rates across the three arms in, in the study, really varied from, I think, around 5.2% to just under 7%. So it was a, a relatively well-tolerated procedure, whether or not node mapping or lymphadenectomy was performed. I think this is, is probably driven in, in large part in that the vast majority of women underwent a minimally invasive uh, hysterectomy so morbidity is much less um, than an open uh, abdominal procedure. And what we found is there was no difference. There was actually no difference in either the univariate analysis of, of complications. So just looking at the raw rate of complications or in our multivariable model where we adjusted for how sick patients were, we adjusted for uh, age and, and other potential risk factors for complications. So I think, again, that's that's overall um, reassuring in, in, in this analysis. And we'll say, you know, a couple uh, of caveats with this. Um, first, this is a study that used a, a large administrative data set. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking at a large administrative data set, we're really only able to capture major perioperative complications. So things like thromboembolic events, major infectious complications. So we may probably are not capturing uh, minor complications that may be important to, to patients as well as to, to physicians. And second, this is we looked at acute perioperative complications. So these are things that happen during a hospitalization. So we really don't have data on, on long long-term morbidity. Again, based on, on published data, you know, we think that the long-term outcome of sentinel lymph node biopsy um, should be should be good and there should be no increased risk of major complications. Uh, but again, that's not something we're able to measure in, in this data set. Very well. And, and one of the other things also is that uh, you mentioned in your study that the rate of actual lymph node dissection uh, was up to 6.4%. And and, you know, and some might say, well, I understand uh, performing sentinel lymph node mapping based on the low risk of morbidity with the procedure, but why would anybody do a lymph node dissection or a lymphadenectomy in a patient with endometrial hyperplasia? Do you think this stems out of the fact that there was a, a select group of patients that underwent frozen section? Or what, why, do, why do you think that there's a, a report of uh, up to 6.4% lymphadenectomy in endometrial hyperplasia? Yeah, I, I agree with your point completely. I think it's probably driven by a couple of factors. I think probably there's a group of patients who underwent frozen section um, and they underwent lymphadenectomy based on the potential findings of frozen section. I also suspect that, that probably there are, are some patients who had underwent what, would, what was an intended uh, sentinel lymph node biopsy and perhaps the, the sentinel nodes could not be identified or there were technical issues and because there was already a plan in place. Those patients went on to, to some type of more formal lymph node assessment. So again, a potential downstream complication of in incorporating sentinel lymph nodes into to, to this group uh, of patients. Um, but but I, I certainly agree. I think the, the rate of lymphadenectomy was higher than, it, than I would have thought. I would have thought it would have been incredibly low in this population. Yeah. And, um, and I think you alluded a little bit to this uh, before with regards to minimally invasive surgery. Um, the use of robotic surgery was associated with a higher rate of sentinel lymph node mapping. Um, why do you think uh, this might be? Yeah, I, I think it, it, it's easy if you're using a robotic surgical platform. I think with built-in in technology for immunofluorescence and, and performing sentinel lymph node uh, mapping and, and biopsy, I, I think the technology is, is there. It, it's readily at hand. So I think, again, it, it stems back to the fact that this procedure is just becoming more commonly used across uh, gynecologic oncology for a variety of different indications. So I think the, the fact that surgeons are familiar with it 
Um, the technology is easy. It, it, it's at hand. I think that's probably one of the factors that really uh, drove this, particularly in those patients who underwent a robotic-assisted procedure. Yeah. Um, now, let's get back a little bit to the issue of uh, cost. And, and since we're on minimally invasive surgery, um, I believe you found that sentinel lymph node mapping was associated with an increase in cost when done by laparoscopy, but not by robotics. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, it's not exactly clear on, on why we, we saw these trends. We looked at, at our data set um, for those women who underwent a laparoscopic hysterectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy. Costs were around $1,000 greater um, per case compared to hysterectomy alone in, in a, a multivariable adjusted model. In the robotic uh, assisted hysterectomy cohort, <clears throat> this, was, this was approximately uh, $360 greater, um, which was not statistically significantly different from hysterectomy uh, alone. Um, when we, we delved a little bit deeper into cost, the cost uh, increase was predominantly driven by variable costs as opposed to fixed costs. Um, so fixed costs are those costs that, that are, are constant, that really don't vary by the, the quantity of a service that's rendered, um, whereas variable costs tend to increase the more you use a, a service. So disposable instruments, potentially, uh, you know, radio tracers or, or, or dyes. Um, you know, again, I, I don't have a, a, a good explanation for this. It may be that, that with the, the robotic assisted procedures the technology is built in it, it's easily at hand you know there may be potentially more disposables that don't need to be specifically opened uh for the the procedure but it definitely i think warrants further investigation yeah um now one one of the questions that uh and, and we were discussing this manuscript with some of our fellows actually prior to a case last week um and the question that came up is when when doing lymph node evaluation uh in patients with endometrial atypical hyperplasia then one is left to wonder well what was the rate of positive lymph nodes when you actually did it what was the rate um and i did not see that in the uh, in this manuscript tell us uh, as to why was that not reported <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, again, that, that's probably the, one of the major limitations of, of this study. So when we select, again, this was a, a, a study using an administrative data set. So this was patients who were operated on at hospitals across the, the United States, and we looked at their billing records after the, the procedure. So we probably, our, our selection criteria was just those patients who had atypical endometrial hyperplasia. So patients with cancer were excluded from the, the analysis. Now, I, I think, obviously, the concern is for the patient who starts out with with atypical hyperplasia and then is ultimately found with a cancer, some of those patients would have been excluded from our analysis if they had their cancer coded. Uh, so what this means is there's probably, a, a truly, if you look at the, the population, there's probably been a, a higher rate of nodal assessment among women who start out with atypical endometrial hyperplasia. And again, this is just a, a limitation of using administrative um, data. When you look at prior institutional studies, uh, there, there was a, a study that looked at just over 120 patients uh, where they found that the rate of positive lymph nodes uh, among women with an a priori diagnosis of atypical hyperplasia was around just over 3%. Mm -hmm. um, and when they took just those patients who started out with atypical hyperplasia preoperatively were found with a cancer on final pathology, uh, then the rate of positive nodes was 6.3%. Uh, so there's definitely a small risk uh, of positive lymph nodes. Again, it, it, it's small overall um, for that population who, who does ultimately have a cancer on final pathology. Yeah, and, and I think uh, uh, our next question from Sarah Nasser in Germany, I think alludes to, to those studies that you mentioned in your discussion. She asked, um, you highlight the two studies where 
Um, you state that sentinel lymph node mapping may change care in about 28% of patients and that the rate of positive notes, as you mentioned, was 6.3% when there was cancer in the specimen. So her question is, given those uh, data and the information from your study, are we moving in a direction where you think this might become a standard? Yeah, I, I think I think that's the ultimate question. I, you know, I, I would highlight the caveat that I, I think overall the data describing the, the benefit in the long term to patients uh, with the diagnosis of atypical hyperplasia, the benefit uh, from a cancer standpoint of doing lymph nodes um, is very, very limited. Most of the prior work is based on, on relatively um, small institutional series. So I think it's very subject to, to selection bias on, on who undergoes nodal uh, evaluation. I, I think, you know, at least in, in my practice, um, I have not seen a rate of 3 to 6% of patients who start out with atypical hyperplasia ultimately having nodal disease um, in, in, in some form or another um, at, at the completion of, of the procedure. So I, I, I think that that's unclear. I think the other difficult um, difficult uh, thing about assessing the, the role of lymph node dissection is I, I, I think that the data is really muddled by the unclear role of lymphadenectomy overall for endometrial cancer. I, I think uh, you know the guidelines are nebulous for, for low-risk patients. Um, what we do with that data data, I, I think there's often no clear guidelines. I think when you look at, at tumor boards around the country, if you have a patient who ultimately comes back with a grade two uh, cancer with a, a moderate amount of, uh, of myo-invasion and the nodes weren't assessed, I think that would generate a pretty robust discussion at tumor boards as far as how best to manage that patient. So I think we, we really, you know, we really don't know what the role of nodes are. We don't know how that, that influences uh, prognosis and, and treatment planning in, in this population. So again, I think our study was really looking at, you know, how often this is done, whether we can safely do it, you know, whether we should be doing it and whether the, the, the information is actionable and useful. I think that remains unknown at this point. Excellent. And um, Jason, this next question comes from Emma Allenson. Uh, she's from Australia. Um, mm -hmm. She wants to know about, obviously, the impact on um, healthcare costs. And in, uh, she talks about in the setting of universal healthcare. Um, you may have a different rate, perhaps even higher, of sentinel lymph node mapping um, in patients with atypical hyperplasia. Um, how much of the relatively low rate of nodal assessment in this database do you think is secondary to the cost passed directly on to the patient? In other words, I guess in a universal healthcare system where uh, everything is covered versus where an insurance-based system um, where they may be much more selective as to whether sentinel lymph node mapping gets paid for or not, or, or reimbursed. Yeah, I, I would say that probably in universal healthcare, and I think probably even in, in settings like the United States with some type of commercial insurance, that probably very little uh, of these costs are actually passed on to, to patients or, or providers. I think most of this cost is probably absorbed by the hospital. I think when you, when you look at, at procedures, when you look at the introduction of new techniques, devices, some type of intraoperative strategy that, that you want to use, um, typically that cost is, uh, is offset by hospitals. So there's typically very little 
little um, in the way of, of cost sharing, either with patients in the form of, of higher out-of-pocket expenses, or for that matter, with, with surgeons in the form of, of reduced reimbursement. So I think because of that, there's probably not a lot of monetary disincentive, either for patients or for surgeons, um, performing the, this procedure. Now, again, I think obviously if this becomes too costly, um, that's where hospitals may start to, to, to push back, because I think ultimately um, hospitals are, are, are in most scenarios uh, the, 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 the ones who are going to, to be absorbing these costs overall. Yeah. And, and Jason, um, this next question is a question sort of like on technicality. It comes from Cecilia Darin. Um, she's in Argentina. And she says, uh, what, what do you think of injecting the dye before the hysterectomy uh, and proceeding with the hysterectomy and performing the sentinel lymph node biopsy only if the frozen section identifies a cancer? Yeah, I, I think I, I would be concerned about that. And, and predominantly, Predominantly because I, th I think there's often a fairly significant time lapse between you when you would inject at the start of procedure, uh, at the start of the procedure, and, and when you would ultimately perform the, the the dissection. I think number one, you need to complete the hysterectomy. The uterus needs to be out. You need to then assess intraoperatively with pathology in a, a frozen section. So that could be a relatively long time period. Um, so I, I would be concerned that, that that lag may potentially obscure identification of what the true sentinel lymph nodes are, and you may actually end up dissecting um, more nodes or doing a more extensive lymph adenectomy. Um, I, I think there's also the, the concern about the around the interpretation of a, of a frozen section um, in, in this population. Again, in some centers, I think they're very good at performing, accurately performing frozen section and intraoperative assessments. Um, but again, for small areas of cancer, even for cancers and identifying myoinvasion, um, it can often be, be limited by the, the pathologic uh, pathology uh, care that, that you have available at, at your institution. So I think that this is potentially an appealing concept, um, but it, I, I think measuring that time frame, understanding how that impacts identification and accuracy of sentinel lymph nodes um, clearly warrants uh, further investigation. Yeah. So now, Jason, as, uh, as we come to the conclusion of the podcast, I want to ask you a couple of more questions. And one of the things, sure. again, you know, that I always admire about not only having these discussions with you, but uh, reading your manuscripts, you're always very transparent with regards to the limitations of the uh, of the studies. Um, what would you say about the major limitations of this particular study? Yeah, I, I think in my mind, the major limitation of this study is that that you know, I want readers and, and, and your listeners to be aware that this is a study of, of an administrative uh, billing database. So again, what we did was we selected women with atypical hyperplasia based on billing codes. So just by the, the definition and the way that we set up the cohort, uh, those patients with cancer were excluded. Um, so I want people to, to be aware that, again, some of those patients who started out with atypical hyperplasia, but a cancer was identified, and if they had a billing code for cancer, those patients would have been excluded from our cohort. So from a practical standpoint, I think what this means is the 14% rate of sentinel lymph node biopsy in, in our cohort. Probably when you look at all women who, uh, who started out a priori with atypical hyperplasia, probably that, that rate is significantly higher because those women with a cancer, some of those women with a cancer 
would have been excluded um, from our, our, our cohort. Uh, so I think that's a major caveat. I think that's a major limitation of the study. I, I think that's why we, we need more institutional series, more prospective studies to, to try to examine the, the, this phenomenon. Um, but again, really, what we hope to do is really just examine patterns of care and, and examine morbidity in, in, in this population. But certainly your, your listeners should uh, you know, take those limitations in, in light when they, when they interpret, interpret our data and our findings. Very well. So then now on to my last question, obviously the, the take-home points, as I mentioned um, previously. Well, in our institution, we perform sentinel lymph node mapping routinely for endometrial cancer, not for atypical endometrial hyperplasia. So how do we move forward from here? Based on these results, should we, and I think that we talked a little bit about this, but should we st start considering uh, sentinel lymph node mapping in every patient with atypical endometrial hyperplasia and specifically What do you do in your own practice? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I don't think at this point this should be universally adopted for women with atypical hyperplasia. I, I think what our study does is it shed, sheds light on patterns of care. It's reassuring that we're not seeing a spike in, in, in morbidity, but the, the cost data is, is certainly concerning. I, I think um, this type of data, I, I think this is a question that's really ripe for a prospective study. I, and I, I think this is a great topic for a multi-institutional observational study, um, just following these patients looking at how often this, this information is useful. I think that the second area where, where we need more data is understanding, really understanding patient preferences. You know, as, as you brought up, patients will often come in and, and some patients, if this information may be helpful, they, they would want it. Other patients you know, may not want to have, be in the operating room longer or, or potentially at risk for cost. So I think understanding really patient attitudes and preferences, I think this is a great area for shared decision making um, among patients and, and providers. Um, for me, I I do not routinely perform sentinel lymph node uh, dissection in patients with atypical endometrial hyperplasia. Um, I, I will say that, that you know, based on, on this data, I have at least started to discuss it with, with patients, and I have performed it in selected patients. But I don't think um, that this is ready for everyone and, and not ready for prime time at this point. I think we really need more data, um, and I think this is a, a, a topic that, that we need to consider and, and continue to debate in, in the field. Dr. Jason Wright, thank you so much. Always absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for your contribution with this manuscript and with many other very important manuscripts. We look forward to your future work. And once again, congratulations on being named the Editor-in-Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Ramirez, thank you uh, so much. It's always a pleasure to, to, to be with you. And thank you for sharing and, and highlighting our, our work. And thank you for your kind words.